This afternoon I'd like to frame the teaching around a <coughs> kind of a famous story from the suttas. Most of you, I think, will have at least some familiarity with this story. Um, many of you will have a lot of familiarity with it. It's the story of Bahia. And so just to set the context of our story, Bahia was a renunciate living at the time of the Buddha, but had not met the Buddha. He, uh, his name apparently means bark cloth because he wove and created uh, his own clothes out of bark. So he was a renunciate in that way also. And he was very well respected in the area where he lived. He was g offered alms. He was offered robes. And I don't know if he used his robes, given that he made bark cloth, but <laughs> it says he was offered robes <laughs> and food. And, uh, and he was very well respected. He had a demeanor, apparently, that was uh, evocative of respect. And uh, one evening, he was sitting in his uh, place where he meditated, and it said the thought occurred to him. Now of those in the world who, who are arhants or have entered on the path of arhantship, am I one of those? So he wondered how, how enlightened he was. And uh, the story goes, as these kinds of things happen in the teachings, that a heavenly being came to him who happened to be a uh, uh, reincarnation of a blood relative. So there was a kind of connection between this heavenly being and Bahia. And this uh, heavenly being had some compassion on Bahia and said, you know, you're not an Arhant. You're not, you haven't entered on the way to being an arhant, and in fact, you don't even have the practice whereby you could become an arhant. And so Bahia said, a little bit crushed, said, well, who might have entered onto this path of awakening? And, and this heavenly being said, well, there's, there's the Buddha. He lives up north. You might go see him. So Bahia started a journey and went to find the Buddha. And he found the monastery where the Buddha was staying and asked the monks, okay, where's the Buddha? I have to talk to the Buddha. And uh, they said, he's on alms rounds, you know, he's gone that way. And so Bahia trotted off after the Buddha and found him um, and immediately had a recognition. This is an awakened one just by looking at the Buddha. And so he said to the Buddha, it says, he threw himself down with his head at the blessed's one feet, blessed one's feet and said, teach me the Dhamma, teach me the Dhamma. That will be for my long-term welfare and bliss. And the Buddha basically says, Bihia, I'm on alms round right now. This is not the time. <laughs> but, uh, Bahia tries again a second time. 
Again, the Buddha says, I'm on alms round. The third time, Bihiya said, it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Blessed One's life or what dangers there may be for mine. Teach me the Dhamma, please. And uh, almost every time in the suttas when somebody asks the Buddha something three times, he concedes. And so he taught Bahia. And this is what he taught him. I'm going to read part of what he taught him here. Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. This is how you should train yourself. So I want to look at that part for a bit. Because really it uh, speaks to me about the style of practice we're exploring here. We're receiving experience and exploring the possibility of recognizing this is what's happening in the present moment. Seeing is what's happening in the present moment. The cognizing bit is you know, any mental phenomenon. So thinking is what's happening in the present moment. Aversion is what's happening in the present moment. That seems to be the instructions the Buddha is, the Buddha is offering Bahia here. Kind of a really simple, just notice your experience as your experience. To me, they also point to in the scene is only the scene, and the herd is only the herd, also points to that balance of mind that we are looking at and exploring, the, the uh, checking the attitude and seeing is there any reactivity. As we can see if there's, you know, we've been practicing, we've noticed for ourselves, when there's aversion in the mind, in the scene is not just the scene. The mind orients towards things it may uh, tend to be averse to when there's aversion in the mind. Or it lays the aversion on top of whatever it's seeing. When I was experiencing aversion in the mind and turned around in walking meditation and saw those shoes at the end of the path, it was not just in the scene is only the scene. The mind said, who put those shoes there? And so this uh, teaching that the Buddha is offering Bahia to me is a very um, congruent teaching with what we are, we are practicing with here. And yet it's a pretty pithy teaching. It does go on a little bit further and I will, I will continue with what the rest of the teaching is in a moment or in not so much a moment but in a little while. <laughs> um, but I'd like to look at some other teachings in the suttas that also explore this terrain 
of what does it mean in the scene is only the scene. How might, how might this be practiced? What, what might be the experience of in the scene is only the scene? Oh, another piece about the, these four. In the scene is only the scene, and the herd is only the herd. Clearly those are first two sense bases, seeing, hearing. In the sensed is only the sensed. The commentaries say that that refers to smelling, tasting, touching. Sensing through the, uh, you know, these, these other senses. So the, this um, teaching is understood to encompass all six of the sense bases in a kind of a shorthand form. On the six sense bases, we've been talking about seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, and the mind. And so here we have four. Seen, heard, sensed, and cognized for the mind. And so what might it mean to experience the seen is only the seen? There's another sutta that describes how the Buddha experiences the world. This is from a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, 4.24. It's called the Kalakarama Sutta. And this particular translation is by Nyanananda, who wrote a wonderful little book called The Magic of the Mind which was kind of my inspiration for the theme of this retreat. And so here's how the Buddha describes that he relates to these four areas of experience. And again, the pattern is repeated for each of these four areas. The Buddha refers to himself here as Tathagata, a Tathagata, one thus gone, I think is the literal translation of Tathagata. So it begins, he says, a Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. does not conceive of an unseen, does not conceive of a thing worth seeing, does not conceive of a seer. Likewise for the other three. Does not conceive of an audible thing apart from hearing a thing to be sensed apart from sensation, does not conceive of a cognizable thing apart from cognition. Pointing to the way in which our minds do their 
thing in relationship with the world. So this word used in this text, conceiving, it's understood in the commentaries at least to be very closely related to to papancha, the topic I talked about the other day, the idea of uh, this kind of creation of a an objectification, the separation as we see experience, meet experience, the separation between self and other. So I'll come back to the way the Buddha experiences sight, sound, sensation, and cognition in a moment. But there's another description in the suttas of how an ordinary person relates to these same four things. So this is useful. This is like, okay, so here's how, here's how we tend to relate to things and here's how the Buddha tends to relate to things. So the, uh, this description is in Majjhima 1. So I'll read this and then reflect on this piece a little bit. One perceives the scene as the scene. So there's a sight and we perceive it, we recognize it. Having perceived the scene as the scene, one conceives oneself as the scene. One conceives oneself in the scene One conceives oneself apart from the scene. Or one conceives the scene to be mine. One delights in the scene. Why is that? Essentially, why does the ordinary person do this? Because the scene has not been fully understood. So this is basically, you know, in my understanding is different ways of relating to experience, different ways of relating a self to experience. So different forms of self-relationship to objects that are described here. I am X. I am in X. I am separate from X. Or X is mine. I think we may be familiar with these flavors of relationship of our sense of self to experience. I am my body, perhaps. Or I am my, uh, my feelings. I am angry. I am in, maybe it, maybe I'm in my body. That I am a kind of a, uh, something looking out from inside of my body. I am in my body. I am separate from something. 
This to me is the othering, the recognition or the sense of I'm here, that's there, the separation. I am separate from you. And something is mine. That's probably the easiest one. So these are, we can be curious about in our experience when we uh, recognize a sense of self. And, you know, again, I have to keep saying, you know, don't try to do this or, you know, don't start thinking about this and carrying a piece of paper with these four ways of, of constructing a sense of self and checking them out every time you notice a sense of self. It's like, you know, I just, I just like reflect on this from time to time. I don't hold this teaching in my mind. But when I come back and reflect on it, like I would been reflecting on this teaching for a few days and there have been some kind of recognitions and insights that have come from in my own practice around some of these teachings. And so from time to time, it can be useful to bring these kinds of reflections in. And so again, not to try to do it, but from time to time, there might be the possibility of recognizing, maybe just at a simple level, a distinction between, uh, you know, the sense of self that's creating an other, you know, that, that, that othering that happens. It's, it's not so much that it feels like a me, but boy, it sure feels like you're a you. That's a form of selfing. That's a form of this conceiving, this separation. That's a useful form to recognize. We do this all the time. We do this with respect to objects in the world. We do it with respect to other people. We do it particularly around the political field these days is really doing it around race, around religion, othering. And so noticing that, you know, the othering is also a creation of a, of, a, of a me. There's a me here that is separate. Or whether the uh, sense of self is around owning or possessing something. That's a flavor we all, you know, know that I want, I need, and oh, this is mine. Not wanting to have that thing taken away from us. Ownership, possession. Or, or the sense of I am. You know, what am I taking myself to be? Sometimes there's a clear sense of kind of occupying some kind of uh, specific sense of self. Like I talked about the other day around the 40-year-old me arguing with the person in my mind versus the two-year-old sense of self that arose in immediate contrast to that. So sometimes there's a sense of kind of taking, uh, taking up birth or having a sense of self about a specific uh, role. You know, I'm the daughter. I am the student. I am the... Uh, boss, I am whatever. So we, we can take up 
ownership or not ownership, but we can take up residence as a role. That's that's one of these forms. I am this kind of role. And again, you know, useful to recognize how are we taking ourselves to be a sense of self. This is studying what's arising and recognizing it as a sense of self arising. Not trying to tell ourselves, oh, it's an arising sense of self. The Buddha said there's not self, so I should get rid of this. No, there's an arising sense of self. This needs to be understood. The Buddha pointed to understanding over and over and over again. Understand what's happening. The freedom happens, the release happens, the wisdom grows as the mind hangs out with, oh, this is what it's like to be in this sense of self. And then suddenly finds itself, poop, in another sense of self. It's like, wow, that, that was constructed. That sense of self was not something. It was not inherent. It was not me. I thought it was me in that moment. It sure felt like me in that moment. But boy, it's disappeared and there's another me here now. <laughs> so we see, we see that. We can witness that and it begins to you know, poke holes in the idea of a solid sense of self. There is a me here. There's sometimes a kind of a much more, uh, I'd say, nebulous sense of self that just kind of takes its form of, I am. Not I am anything in particular, but I am. It's this like identification with existence, with being. We can start to see these processes at, at work as we simply witness our experience. The construction of a sense of self, this conceiving that happens, it's a mental formation. Just like anger is a mental formation. Anger can be watched, can be known. The process of selfing. That's what that feels like. What happens with this sense of self? What kind of views does this sense of self hold on to? What kind of body experience does this sense of self have? A curiosity about just watching the process at work. Watching the process at work. And then back to the Buddha's description of his own relationship to these four areas, seeing, seen, heard, sensed, and cognized. We'll look at this from the perspective of sight, not looking at it. And we won't go through all four of the areas. We'll just go through it with respect to sight. So it says... The Tathagata does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. 
So this, to me, points to that very thing we were exploring with Papancha. What Papancha does is it creates the idea of a um, uh, a thing that we have seen. It, it reifies the sight into an entity, into an object. And so the, Buddhist, the, the Buddha uh, explores his own experience as this conce- does not conceive of a visible thing apart from sight. So sight is what's happening. And there's an understanding, my sense is there's an understanding that what that is is a process in our bodies and minds. Doing seeing. The perceptual process of recognition is not followed by that kind of taking that perception to be a thing out there. does not conceive of a visible thing as apart from sight. Does not conceive of an unseen. This one is not so well described in the commentaries as far as I can tell. It's some, I, I, I can't, qu- I didn't follow the explanation. Um, But a way that I can understand this, that I'll share with you, that kind of makes sense to me. Again, I'm just, you know, making a caveat here. This is, this is Andrea. <laughs> this is, you know, no teacher I've heard of has said this. So this is, this is my, my reflection. Does not conceive of an unseen. So to me, it's, it's kind of paired with this idea of not conceiving of something apart from sight. So we don't take what's out there to be a real thing. But not conceiving of an unseen, to me, speaks to the side where it's, we're also not saying there's nothing out there. It's not saying there's nothing out there to be seen. There's no thing. He's not conceiving one way or the other. Just recognizing what can be experienced is this process of seeing happening in this mind and body. What's out there or not, my sense from this is the Buddha is not so interested in what's actually out there. Not so interested in, in the, like the an ontological reality of what's out there. He's interested in how do the processes of our mind and body as they move through the world and relate to other processes of mind and body, how does suffering come to be and how can we free ourselves from that? The ontological beingness of the world didn't seem to be an important uh, exploration in terms of Freedom from suffering. So that's my understanding of the Tathagata does not conceive of an unseen. 
It's neither saying there is something out there or there's not something out there. Does not conceive of a thing worth seeing. This one's a little more simpler, a little simpler. It's uh, exploring uh, a thing worth seeing implies a craving, a wanting, a desire. And so it's not, there's not, not a construction of craving or wanting around, or aversion in that mat- for that matter, around the sight. There's just sight, understood to be sight. No wanting sights to be a particular way, no wanting them to go away, just sight. Does not conceive of a seer. Who does not conceive, I am seeing. Does not conceive of a me, an I, a sense of self. Does not conceive of a self that is doing the process of seeing. This is a pretty, I think this is a pretty remarkable uh, explication of the ways we tend to relate to experience in our delusional, with our delusional tendencies. We tend to conceive of something apart from sight Mostly we don't think there's nothing out there, but as we begin to recognize, wow, it's all happening in the mind, we might begin to say, well, then there's nothing out there. It's all illusion. Nothing makes a difference anyway. And the Buddha clearly did not say that. He clearly had us in relationship looking at how we impact each other with respect to suffering and freedom from suffering. We construct craving around experience, greed and aversion, and we're almost always in, a mo- in the posture of, I'm the one seeing, I'm the one intending, I'm the one doing, I'm the one thinking, I'm the one feeling, I'm the one things are happening too. This is a just a very habitual and very deeply conditioned habit in our minds to relate to experience in these ways. And so, having kind of unpacked it a little bit with these other texts, let's go back to the Bahia Sutta and just reread that. I'll reread this first portion. These are instructions the Buddha is offering us. Very simple instructions. You should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the heard, only the heard. 
in reference to the sensed, only the sensed, in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. So that training, what we're doing here, we are exploring this in our practice. We're noticing what's arising. And we're noticing the various mental functions that come into play around seeing, hearing, sensing, and cognizing. Every sight includes the mental uh, functions or the, the participates in, I should say, every sight begins a participation in the mental aggregates. The sight is known. The sight is felt. We feel it. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The sight is perceived. And then mental formations begin. Or mental formations are there in the first place, which they are, and that conditions how we see. So looking at the you know the process of perception here because that from the talk that I gave the other day around the honeyball sutta talking about how perception and uh, the delusion of papancha kind of just get so intertwined we basically have a a perception papancha perception papancha perception papancha loop going all the time very subtle levels. We, it's almost impossible for us to simply see in the scene is only the scene. And yet, we can start to recognize what mental formations are coming into play around seeing because we're curious about what's happening in there. We can see our minds functioning. We can see our minds at work. We can recognize when aversion is present in the mind that this impacts our relationship to sight or it impacts perhaps our relationship to our planning mind. Different experience if something else is present in the mind. If there's joy or delight present in the mind and we see things, it has a different impact on the mind. So this, um, the perceptual loop, you know, even when we think we're perceiving things in a pretty simple way, I've had some uh, experiences, recognitions of just how deeply embedded views and opinions and beliefs can be into the very perceptual process. One example of this from, um, I've talked about a a couple year period where I worked a lot with low energy states, sleepiness, dullness, torpor, 
Um, and uh, there was a period of time on one retreat, it was a retreat with Saira Utejaniya, a two-week retreat. This, oh, it was just so much, so much low energy. And um, the mind was perceiving the low energy state as dullness. And, you know, that to me just seemed like, well, that's what it is. It's dullness. And I was exploring the dullness and exploring, you know, what was going on and doing walking meditation one day, noticing the dullness and actually noticing a little bit of aversion to the dullness, noticing there was a belief or a a kind of a a heaviness around. It's like, I just cannot meditate. I cannot be present right now. And yet I, was not- I noticed that thought and I noticed the dullness and I noticed that lo and behold, actually, well, seeing is happening. Hearing is happening. It's like, wow, who's doing that? You know, this mind feels so dull, it, it can't go out and do anything, but seeing is happening. And so uh, noticed in a way how the mind had overlaid a or had a view that dullness was a problem. You know, that idea, I cannot be present. And in that moment, it was clearly shown to me, no, the mind is already here. It's doing its thing. You know, you're not in charge here. Seeing is seeing. Hearing is hearing. The process of seeing is doing its thing. And in that um, shift, or there was a little bit of a, of a recognition of, oh, you know, this is the, the, the processes, the mental processes and physical processes are carrying on, even though this dullness is here. And uh, there was a shift in the mind that began, and I don't know how this quite happened, whether I chose to do this or I thought about doing this or whether it was just wisdom that decided to re-perceive the state of dullness. But at some point the mind began, instead of recognizing the state as dullness, it recognized it as low energy. That had a much more neutral flavor to it. And in retrospect, I can see that the perception of dullness already included the idea that dullness was a problem. The perception itself was already skewed. That's papancha at work, impacting how we perceive the world, how we recognize what's happening. Again, seeing or, or hearing about this teaching, it's, um, our practice is not to try to stop feeling perception, mental formations around our sense experience, but begin to be curious about seeing, hearing, no, see, I mean, uh, feeling, perceiving, knowing, and mental formations that are happening. You've Many of you have talked about, wow, I can see this process of feeling. I can see how feeling is conditioned. I see that, uh, 
you know, as I eat food, you know, the, 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 the feeling tone of food even is conditioned based on what I ate right before that. So watching it, seeing the process of the conditioned nature. My understanding is when the Buddha says, and I don't know that this is, you know, I don't know what the Buddha actually experiences. I mean, like the, the mind of the Buddha is unknowable. It's said in the suttas, you know, we cannot know what the mind of the, the Buddha is. But at least our practice around these teachings is not to try to stop the processes at work in our mind, but to recognize there are processes at work in our minds. That feeling, perception, mental formations are happened and are conditioned based on sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and things happening in our mind. My, uh, you know, one possibility of what the Buddha might mean when he says, in the scene is only the scene, is that there's the process of seeing and the entire process of seeing is fully understood to be comprised of feeling and perception and mental formations and knowing. And because it's fully understood, there's not the mind that goes out and believes what's perceived to be a separate thing. There's not a mind that believes there's something to cling to, something to to hold on to, something to do with that. There's not the mind that constructs a me separate from what is known. My understanding is that those processes still tumble on in the Buddha. They simply no longer, they're, they're understood as tumbling on, and they no longer tumble on in the direction of suffering. So the rest of this sutta. So the Buddha has instructed Bahia, train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, is only the scene, etc. So train yourself that way. That's what I understand to be what we're doing here. We're training ourselves to recognize the processes at work in our minds. We're training ourselves to recognize that what we normally take to be reality when we're not clear is an amazing construction of our minds, that our experience that we're meeting is a construction of our minds, a kind of a magic show. And as an ordinary person, we fully buy into the magic show. In our training, we begin to recognize, oh, this is a magic show. Wow, it's pretty amazing. And so we're not fooled by the magic show into believing that that woman has actually been sawed in half and, you know, it's 
We understand it's a magic show, and yet it's like, wow, how do they do that? And so we're, we begin to kind of see the see that it is a magic show, and then further we understand how the magic is done. And we no longer can be fooled by the magic show. So, the Buddha continues with Bahia. When, for you, there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. And so, the Buddha is basically saying, train yourself this way. You'll begin to understand it. And at some point, the understanding, oh, in the scene is only the scene. The magic show is seen through. And the Buddha describes the understanding in terms of not-self. Then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. No conceiving of a separate self as apart from experience. Conceiving of self apart from that. There is no you in terms of that. There is no you in terms of experience. When there's no you in terms of that, there is no you there. the understanding that the processes of body and mind are doing their thing, carrying on, seeing sees, hearing hears, feeling feels, knowing knows, intending intends, loving loves, frustration frustrates. When for you there will be only the scene in reference to the scene, only the heard in reference to the heard, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor yonder nor between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And so pointing to the real benefit of understanding the magic show, freedom, freedom from suffering. Something I like to reflect on about this teaching is it's clearly got two sections to it. There's the instructions. Here's how you should train yourself. This is what we're doing. The practice that we're doing is very in line with these instructions that the Buddha offered Bahia. And the result piece of this sutta, which is when you train yourself in that way, 
and understanding arises. Freedom is the result. The understanding of not-self is the result of this. It's a natural result of orienting to see our experience from this simple perspective. I sometimes think, you know, we don't even have to believe in the teaching of not-self here. We can start with the simple. Well, let's see if we can just see, you know, in the seen is only the seen, and the heard is only the heard, and the sensed is only the sensed, and the cognized is only the cognized. That perspective is onward leading to the freedom that's possible and the understanding, the understanding of not conceiving of a seer. The ending of the story. Bahia has heard these teachings. Bahia had really good Samadhi, apparently. He uh, had a, probably had really deep commitment to ethics because just hearing this teaching from the Buddha was sufficient for him to be completely awakened on the spot. I envision that while the Buddha was saying this to Bihia, Bihia was practicing and experiencing in the moment. It's like a guided meditation. The Buddha gave Bihia the perfect guided meditation for him in that moment. And he got it. Freedom. He was so grateful he wanted to uh, ordain with the Buddha. Oh, no, it doesn't say that. I, that's, a, that's not in here. I thought that's a... Somebody else must have inserted that. Um, pretty much immediately after this incident of the Buddha offering these teachings to Bahia and Bahia becoming enlightened, Bahia was killed by a cow. Killed by a cow with... Uh, who'd separated from her young calf and maybe Bahia had inadvertently walk in, walked between the cow and her young calf. The cow killed Bahia. To me, you know, I don't know exactly why this is this way, the story. I mean, maybe this is exactly what happened. But the fact that it's recorded, you know, it's like, how does it land as we take this in? And to me, it ties back to the, the third request that Bahia made to the Buddha that said, you know, we don't know how long we have 
to live in this world. Please teach me the Dharma. My sense is that the the message there or the teaching around Bahia dying, the fact that it was recorded in the suttas as a you know, this is this is a piece of the learning. Bahia got the teaching, became enlightened and died almost immediately. My sense is this is about the urgency of practice. We do not know when we will die. We have no idea. Now is the time for practice. Now is the only moment we have. How do we want to relate to this now? Given that we don't know what our next now will be. Our next moment will be. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. 